Welcome to the first IIEA Insights after the summer break. Welcome to, to our guest, Professor Susan Nyman, who will look at the meaning of woke and other aspects of that ideology, which she discusses in her most recent book, Woke, Left is Not Woke. Before introducing Susan, it's worth underscoring the wholesale confusion and contestation around the term woke. Something brought home to me one evening while watching uh, the nightly news. Quote, woke, whatever the hell that means, said Sean Whelan, the U.S. correspondent of Ireland's national broadcaster, RTE, when reporting on an American political story. With a considerably larger number of members than usual signing up today's event to today's event, it would seem that many of you are interested in understanding the phenomenon better. So let me introduce Susan. She's an American philosopher who has been director of the Einstein Forum in Potsdam, Germany since 2000, following professorships at Yale and Tel Aviv universities. She's a member of the Berlin Brandenburg Academy of Sciences and the American Philosophical Society, as well as the author of nine books. Her most recent book, which we will discuss presently, has just made the bestseller list in Germany. Susan also has a home in the West Rhine and spends plenty of time here, so is familiar with uh, how we discuss things in, in, uh, in this regard. Uh, as well. So with that, uh, Susan, you're very welcome. And thanks for joining us to discuss this phenomenon in your book. Um, we might start with, uh, I thought we might start with a, a, a discussion of how the debate around woke and what it means and uh, what it signifies differs between the German speaking world where you've lived, uh, as you said, for most of your adult life and, and the Anglophone world. Um, any thoughts on, on how different and how important uh, this, this issue is in the two places? It's becoming increasingly important in Germany. I, I think it's safe to say that uh, woke started in American universities, although not only by young students. There's also the post-colonial theorists, um, many of them from formerly colonized countries who've been teaching in American universities since the 80s. And there's a lot of overlap between woke and post-colonial. Um, so it started there, but it certainly has moved to, I believe, Britain first, Canada, and it's now hitting the rest of Europe because, uh, I, I mean, there's a lot of interest in my book in in many, many countries. The French discussion is slightly different, but uh, the German discussion is pretty close to the Anglophone discussions. I, you know, I'm a bit of a Hibernophile, as I told you, and I do feel the Irish uh, are a bit saner about lots of things now, as Finn O'Toole pointed out in one of his books, the Brits and the Irish seem to have switched. Uh, the Irish were used to do a lot of myth making, and the the uh, Brits were more analytical and and sober. And it seems to have changed a bit. I I don't see in Ireland the kind of hysteria that you can see in England or also in Germany. In the meantime, um, and I want to point out this is a phenomenon that may have started with people largely in their 20s and their professors. But in the meantime, it's hit the whole cultural world, um, particularly the gatekeepers, particularly people in their 50s and 60s who run publishing companies and cultural institutions. And I believe in some ways 
are afraid of being behind the youth, of missing the youth thing. So, uh, you know, it's by no means, uh, you know, a phenomenon of a, of a few, uh, let's say, misguided and undereducated young people. It's it's really something that's taken over uh, a surprising amount of the public discourse. Again, I haven't seen the hysteria about it in Ireland that I see in some other places. Hmm, I, I wonder, is that possibly related to colonial pasts that countries would... I do wonder about that, but the counterexample, of course, is India, which is groaning under uh, post-colonial theory as... Um, well, not just instrumentalized by Narendra Modi, um, friend who's working on the connections between post-colonial theory and, shall we say, proto-fascist uh, politics, uh, sees it as not accidental that Modi is trying to use post-colonial categories, don't come at us with European values um, to support a violently nationalist agenda. So, you know, India, of course, India and Ireland have very, very different histories, but it can't only be, um, a, you know, for a former colony um, story, because I I gather it's a, it's a huge problem in India. So let, let's move, move on to this, this the, the substance of your book. And I think just some definitions, because I, I think a lot of people are scratching their heads in, in terms of what exactly woke is and very different views uh, uh, on that, of course. Um, but your, your argument is an anti-woke argument, but from a leftist perspective. And yeah. you, you argue that it, that it, it amounts to the abandon, abandonment of, quote, ideas that are central to any left-wing standpoint. So one pillar of that argument that you make is that wokeists, to 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 uh, use that term, deny or dismiss the existence of, of progress, human progress. I, I wonder how it come about that people who often describe themselves as progressives have become so dismissive of global improvements in, for example, human health and education. Um, before I answer that, let me say that the difficulty in defining woke is that it is itself an incoherent concept. It's become uh, a curse word, a term of abuse, mostly used by the right to uh, discredit any form of fight against racism, sexism, homophobia. Um, but what is what? What's so confusing? confuses people about woke, and it confused me too. I mean, I partly wrote this book to figure out my own, um, where I, my own confusion. Woke is driven by traditional left-wing emotions. You want to stand on the side of those who are oppressed or marginalized or uh, colonized or discriminated against. That's just part of what being left means, but that's an emotion, okay? You also want, if you can, to right the wrongs of history or at least to make sure that they're remembered properly. All of those are emotions that I share like any other left liberal person. The problem is, that those left-wing emotions are undermined by a set of 
philosophical assumptions that many people are not aware of, but they're very reactionary. Um, let's take progress, which is where you wanted to start. Um, so yeah, it's certainly true that people who are woke want to work for progress, but they would be more believable if they would actually acknowledge that there had been cases of progress in the past. And as I'm sure you've heard people say, um, you know, certainly in the US, there are plenty of people who say, this is all just slavery by another name. We haven't made any progress since the, uh, you know, the end of the civil war. I know feminists who say, you know, we're still living in a patriarchy. Nothing has changed. Um, you know, I understand the desire to point out that more needs to change, okay? But those kind of views actually come from the French philosopher Michel Foucault, who wrote a series of extraordinarily influential books, pointing out that for many steps forward, you get a step backward, okay? You get two steps backward, rather. And what he does, intentionally or not, is to undermine the hope for genuine progress of any kind. Because if you don't believe that some progress has been made in the future, uh, sorry, some progress that's been made in the past, it's very hard to, you know, pull up your socks and work for progress in the future. It just um, doesn't happen. So, so it's that's an example of the kind of contradiction that you find in woke thought, which confuses people so often. On the one, they want progress. On the other hand, they believe in views that always makes them suggest, no, it's never happened. And that's, of course, a very conservative view. It goes back to, um, you know, well, it actually goes back to the pre-Socratics, but we don't have to go back that far. Take traditional conservatives who refer to original sin and say, well, because we're all born in original sin, uh, you know, we might make some technological progress on the way, but we will never really make moral or political progress. And, you know, to hear some woke talk, it sounds like, well, our original sins now are racism and sexism, but um, they'll be with, they're still with us in the degree that they were always with us. Um, and they'll, you know, and then what? You don't quite know if they're still with us uh, to the degree that they've been, that they've always been, what's supposed to happen in the future. You and I are old enough to know, it's not even a question of age. This is not a generational conflict. Um, that there's been quite a lot of progress made, uh, certainly in my lifetime, on, uh, you know, fighting racism, fighting sexism, fighting homophobia. There's more that needs to be done. But, um, I mean, gosh, could you have imagined a gay president uh, of Ireland uh, tw 10 years ago, 20 years ago? I mean, unbelievable, all right? Um, One of the things, Susan, in, in the discussion, and just in terms of, you know, our memories we would both have would be sort of similar, that, that in the late 1990s, as an assessment of the 20th century was made, mostly it was sort of the 20th century was the worst century in history, that the world is going to hell in a handbasket. And 
certainly my recollection is that that was as prevalent on the left as it was on the right. So my, my question is, does this doubt about progress or dismissiveness about progress on the left predate uh, the emergence of woke, as, as, as I suspect it does? Absolutely. And the decisive year, I think, is 1991, when uh, we saw the collapse of real existing socialism. It's quite interesting because, uh, of course, nobody ever wanted to identify as a Stalinist after, uh, I guess, 1955 and the 20th Party Congress. But in circles that I traveled, uh, people spent, you know, long nights arguing about, well, are they, are they a Trotskyist or a Maoist or what kind of socialist are you? And I think however critical we were of the state socialist regimes in Eastern Europe, most people on the left were absolutely shocked by their collapse. And instead of doing what I wish we had all done on a large and international scale, okay, that didn't work, but does it mean that the socialist project, that is a project of you know, universal justice for everyone, uh, regardless of what country or what income they come from, income background they come from, um, is that project over? Um, or is there another way to do democratic socialism? I mean, there are plenty of ways to do capitalism. Um, it doesn't make sense that there should only be one way to do socialism, and there isn't. But I think people were in such shock that they tended to abandon any idea of a larger internationalist project. And those people who still felt moved by left-wing emotions thought, well, okay, then let's work on small-scale you know, addressing racism, addressing sexism. I'm not saying that was the wrong thing to do. I understand it. And I suppose I was part of it. Well, was I? I mean, I was having very small children in the 90s, but um, I actually think the, the one political project that I really got involved in were, were more, I am a universalist. Um, so I got involved in a couple of universalist projects. Um, but most people focused on a tribe. And I think it's rather unfortunate that most people focused on their own tribe, okay? Um, you know, the standard move of the left to say, you know, striking coal miners in Spain, sorry, in, in Wales, and, uh, you know, Republicans in Spain and freedom fighters in South Africa are, you know, places where your heart is and where you want to be engaged. Of course, you may be engaged in your own struggles at home, but think of, I mean, you know, some of my favorite uh, Irish heroes, um, Daniel O'Connell, right? Um, great, uh, you know, abolitionist who hosted uh, Frederick Douglass when he came to Ireland. Um, uh, Roger Casement was also involved in, you know, um, thinking about the Congo and uh, oppression in South America. And it's that kind of vision, while, of course, fighting for Irish independence in one form or another. It's that kind of vision that used to be absolutely classic to the left. 
and has not really been since uh, since the early 90s. So I agree, it's a, it is a kind of resignation about a larger left-wing project that drives people to more and more tribalist moves. Well, and that's it. The, the next sort of one of the pillars of your uh, criticism of, of woke is that it is tribalist rather than universalist. Um, could you sort of sketch out a bit more some of those elements of tribalism? And, and also, as you set out in the book, you prefer to use the term tribalism over what might be the more commonly used term identity politics. Is, is it again that identity politics has just become sort of one side uses that, that you prefer not to use that? Or um, is, is there a, a, a deeper reason for your preference for tribalism over, over identity politics? There is a deeper reason um, because the phrase identity politics assumes that there are only two facets of our identity that are important, namely race and gender. Um, and I think a good exercise when people are thinking about these questions is to take a piece of paper and write down 10 things that are important to your identity. Um, only two of them would be race or nationality and, and gender, and only some of the time. For example, um, I'm a mother. Uh, that was more important when my children, or that was a deeper part of my identity when my children were younger and living at home. Now that they're grown up, it's not a, as much a part of my day-to-day -day consciousness, but to imagine myself as not having been a mother is, is quite impossible. Um, we identify with our professions. We identify with our political inclinations. Some people, though I never quite understood how, identify deeply with their sports team, um, you know, and can't imagine themselves without that. Musicians cannot imagine a life without music. Now, all of those are things that we choose, right? But to call identity politics the focus on two aspects of our identity that we have really no choice about is uh, is a reductive and impoverished version of identity. So I use the word tribalism. It um, it upsets some people. I mean it to be upsetting, actually, because I would like to bring out the harshness of what it is when one focuses on one's, you know, mostly ethnic or or gender background. Um, one former student of mine said it was offensive to Native Americans. And I said, hey, the word comes, the concept comes from the Bible. You know, this is not Native Americans don't have a lean on it. Um, somebody else, a, uh, a young African-American colleague was saying, you know, I shouldn't use it because he's a proud member of, of the Yoruba tribe. But then the interesting thing was um, someone else from this sort of group of people came up with a quote of James Baldwin, an old quote of James Baldwin asking when, uh, when this tribalism was going to end. And I thought it was rather uh, a nice example of the whole problem about tribalism and so-called cultural appropriation that um, James, if James Baldwin said it, it was retweeted on all kinds of woke uh, Twitter accounts. And if I say it, it's problematic. <laughs> so, so yeah, I do stay with the concept of tribalism. The concept of tribalism is simply our only deep connections 
And therefore, our only real uh, obligations are going to be people who happen to be of our own tribe. And that's a right-wing view. Susan, what really, you know, one of the things that perplexes me about this phenomenon is that until maybe 10 years ago, the, the complexity of, of people's identity was, was increasingly seemed to be accepted, that we have multiple identities, as you say, and nobody, no two people in the world have the same identity, whether it's their sports, combination of sports teams and family situation and background of all sorts of things. What, what, what changed to sort of, as you say, make this sort of a reductionist type argument away from what seems to have been a more sort of accepting view of multiple layers of identity that we all have? It's a really good question. And um, I could make it easy by saying people like simplicity. Um, I I do know two women, um, one British, one American, whose fathers are black and mothers are white. And they have chosen not to identify as mixed, but as black and indeed, you know, very, very tribally. But I'll throw in another hypothesis that I, I have. The, the, um, the first date I mentioned was 1991. The second is 2008 sorry, 2016, um, most of us forget what an amazing moment uh, November 4th, 2008 was when Obama uh, won the election. Um, maybe the Irish don't. I know there's a, there's a tiny little museum at the home of his great-great-grandfather, which I visited with great pleasure on, in Moneygall. Um, but the entire world was celebrating, okay? Um, and it seemed like a moment where in a quote that Obama liked to use from Martin Luther King, the arc of the universe is long, but it bends towards justice. It really did seem like that was happening. And uh, of course it's trendy today to say Obama didn't do anything or he did this wrong or that wrong, but it was a moment of great hope. And, um, Obama himself, of course, was mixed race and always uh, emphasized that. And many people said that's one of the reasons why he could, um, you know, bring together what might be a potential split. What happened in the U.S., and it then, of course, affected the rest of the world, America still is, it won't be for long, but it still is the most powerful country in the world, um, the sight of an absolutely perfectly behaved Black family for eight years in the White House drove a lot of people who were stupider, uglier, more vulgar, with less integrity, drove a lot of people crazy, and one of them was named Donald Trump. And I can imagine, particularly if I were, you know, 10 when Obama was elected, um, or cast my first vote for him, like one of my daughters who was very happy in 2012. It was her first chance to vote, so she was 18. You you did not take the fact that a Black family could live in the White House and be reelected um, as a major step forward. That was just the norm, okay? 
and if you were younger. And the uh, awful backlash constituted by someone who was exactly the opposite of Barack Obama in every single way in 2016 was another shock, certainly in the US and I think in many other places in the world. So I think um, that was a moment where people thought, boy, you know, the arc of the universe is going exactly the wrong way. Um, you know, we were taking steps forward. They weren't enough. There was Occupy Wall Street. We needed more, you know, social rights and all of that. But it looked like things were slowly getting better. And all of a sudden you had this. And then there's a moment of both uh, enormous anger, which I completely understand. Um, I took German citizenship the day after uh, Trump was elected. Um, but uh, I still kept my American as well. But, um, you know, a sense that, well, there's there's nothing to do except double down on symbolic politics, argue about pronouns, um, the kinds of things that are very much woke expressions. And, of course, this sort of turning inward to a tribe, I I. That's the best explanation I have, and I, I think it's at least part of the reason. Just on, on the universalism issue, I suppose there are, there are critics of woke who who say that really that the left, the, the the hard left at least, has has never been universalist with its focus on class politics and looking at society from uh, a, a class perspective, uh, and that woke is just a new iteration of that by focusing on identity and pitting different identities against each other. What's your what's your thought on on that argument that that woke is part of the illiberal left tradition? Clearly you 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 make the case that it's more influenced by the illiberal right tradition, but but that argument um that it is just the latest iteration of of the illiberal left Class is, you know, in some ways a larger, um, you know, a larger tribe than, you know, than ethnic background. But I'm not a class reductionist either. Um, and that's one of the reasons why I'm not a Marxist. I'm a socialist, but I'm not a Marxist. OK. Um, and I think anyone, you know, certainly who wants to take some of Marx's ideas forward in the into the 21st century, has to recognize that the whole concept of class as early Marxist conceived it just doesn't make sense anymore. Um, you know, in, in so many ways, we cannot divide people into classes in the way that you could much more easily in the 19th century. So um, yeah, I'm a socialist, but not a Marxist. And I don't really think that the woke are as influenced by Marx as the right accuses them of being. I mean, you get people like DeSantis and Trump talking about, you know, the pink haired woke Marxist left. I mean, come on. Um, <laughs> it's just, these are not intelligent um, categories being strung together. So I, I could use some more Marxist discussion um, on the left these days, although I, you know, I would, 
I would not, I'm, I'm not a classical Marxist, but I, th I think we do need to rethink those categories because some of them are relevant, just not in the way that Marxists thought in the 19th and through the mid 20th century. And going back to, to that period, um, I, I suppose the rise of you know, the, the left tradition has always been more sort of intellectual. The, the, the reactionary right tradition has been exactly that, more reactionary. And the, the argument that fascism emerged partly as a reaction to Bolshevism. Do you see the rise of Trumpism and the reactionary right in many countries around the world in part a reaction to uh, wokeism? Uh, not exactly. So let me first say uh, it's wrong to see fascism as a uh, response to Bolshevism. That's actually a, I'm not accusing you of this because you can't possibly know all the dis discussions that go on among German historians, but um, that is an argument that's used by the German right. Okay, we were only fighting back against the Bolshevist hordes. Um, it's true that, uh, and and socialism was present in Germany long before fascism was present, okay? So that's true, but you had various strains of socialism and social democracy. And if they could have brought it together uh, in 1932, there wouldn't have been fascists because the combined power of the communists and the social democrats was actually much stronger in uh, in the vote. It's just that they, they wouldn't vote together. And so that is one of the things that I'm worried about at this moment in time. We have rising fascism in many countries, and I think it's appropriate to use the word, okay, for Narendra Modi, for, uh, well, we got rid of uh, Bolsonaro for the moment. We can certainly use it for Donald Trump. Uh, we can certainly use it for uh, Benjamin Netanyahu, um, for Vladimir Putin, I mean, we have a we have a real danger of, let's say, in some cases proto-fascist and in other cases full-on fascist uh, attempt to take over the political world. And they talk to each other, and they, you know, learn from each other's strategies. And perhaps the main reason why I wrote this book was a call for the left to stop losing itself in small fights and realize what genuine left-wing principles are and who we're up against. So um, that's the first thing to say. And yes, I do see, I mean, so the right wing, it's very interesting, work is going to play a role in the terrifying American election that's coming up about a year from now. Um, it's going to be on the lips of the entire right. And some people have criticized me for writing a book criticizing woke, uh, you know, in face of the attacks from the right. I've tried to be very careful not to let my criticisms be instrumentalized. But it's interesting to note that the word woke played no role whatsoever in the 2016 election, okay? What you had was uh, an enormous right-wing white backlash against Obama. And, uh, but people were not talking about woke. I think it's 
started more the other way around. Woke was in a way a backlash to Trump's backlash. But what you certainly have now is, and this is not just in the US, this is in many places, we're seeing it in Germany right now. Um, people say, look, uh, if I can't pay my rent from my pension, that's way more, let's say a woman, um, that's way more important to my life than somebody using what's considered gender correct language in Germany about which there's a lot of fighting. So you have a lot of people moving, certainly moving, some of them are actually moving to the right. I've seen this happen in America, but certainly to a point where they say, I have no political home anymore. I don't identify with any movement. I cannot get upset about pronouns when I see um, rising violent attacks on the most basic democratic values. So that's just something I, I picked up on. You, you, you wrote, political violence is soaring and none of the traditional mechanisms that once restrained it seem to work. Um, there are certainly many reasons to be sort of pessimistic about the direction of travel in the world. But I, I wonder, Susan, if in, in terms of political violence, you'd set out, I, I'd be less um, sort of pessimistic in the sense that, you know, compared to the 1970s, for example, there seems to be far less political violence in the world. Uh, maybe you think that's that's wrong and there, there is more political violence, but you might just spell out what, where, which countries you see political violence taking place and, and what sort of violence that is. Good question. And you're certainly right about Ireland. <laughs> okay. That there's um, a lot less political violence than there was in the, in the seventies or even, you know, flaring up in the nineties again. Um, but um Unfortunately, it's not true in the United States. The number of, I mean, just the number of death threats. Donald Trump is now under indictment for 91 crimes. And the both the judges that have been chosen, the prosecutors, and now some of the jury um, is under police protection because then, you know, some of them will have to move their homes. Um, because they've received death threats. Um, there have been, I mean, now I'm just focusing on the United States. There have been, um, there have been some deaths. There have been, um, you know, bombs that nearly caused deaths. There was this attack on a synagogue that killed 11 people. I mean, they're just, there's a lot of right-wing violence um, going on in the States right now. And frankly, what I and most people I know are worried about supposing Trump actually is convicted and goes to jail. His supporters are armed. Do you think they're going to go home and say, okay, I guess the courts were right? They're not. So um, people in the U.S. have been talking about civil war um, for quite a few years now. I mean, they've been calling it a cold civil war, but it's there. Uh, in Germany, we've had some violence. We had the... Um, assassination of a uh, conservative politician who supported welcoming the refugees when we had a you know a million refugees from Syria and Afghanistan that he was murdered by a right-wing 
uh, you know, person. I mean, we've had, uh, there have been a series of violent events, all from the right, um, all against people of color, um, occasionally against Jews, but mostly of people of color in Germany, or those who supported, um, you know, welcoming the refugees. Um, the political violence in Israel, starting with the assassination of uh, Yitzhak Rabin, which set a whole spiral of violence that has, um, at the moment, it's peaking. But I, I mean, a, a moment, it's never been worse. And I lived in Israel for five years, so I followed that pretty closely. Um, but you have a government in which a convicted terrorist a man who was convicted of terrorism in Israel and was not allowed to serve in the military in a country where everybody serves in the military. I've never heard of a case like this. He is now in charge of security. He's a minister in charge of security. I mean, I'm laughing because I, I don't want to weep or shout. Um, so the amount of now, not just the state turning a blind eye, but state-sponsored violence in Israel is rising. And you have a very grim situation in India where people are, uh, Muslims in particular, are murdered with the encouragement of the government. And um, my Indian friends tell me that they're building concentration camps there and that they're worried about genocide against Muslims. So uh, those are just a few countries, just to name a few countries. Um, I I really I really am worried about it. I mean, you just you, you highlight on the subject of the civil war in the United States. I think you you feel it's almost as likely to happen as not likely to happen. Uh, you're you're that pessimistic, and just in terms of a civil war in the United States, what what you know form would it take? Would it just be sort of more extreme groups taking violent action or you know well, there are two possibilities right now and i mean pessimistic i'm i always say i'm neither an optimist nor a pessimist i believe we have a moral obligation to be hopeful because if we're not hopeful we can't act um and you know then then the world really will go to hell in a handbasket so um so i i wouldn't want to be exactly pessimistic I think there's still a chance, but I'm I, I I don't right now see a good way out of the mess we're in. There are two possibilities: um, Donald Trump wins the election, and then, according to you know people as different as uh, Noam Chomsky and uh, I don't know, um, I'm just talking to a former State Department person in the. Uh, from the German foreign ministry yesterday, um, the world really will go to hell if only because of the climate crisis, okay? And secondly, because a lot of other would-be dict dictators from Erdogan to Bolsonaro to Putin um, figured if the American president can get away with behaving this way, so can we, all right? So if Donald Trump wins the election, he will, he's already said, disband uh, an independent justice system, um, you know, calls for jailing, uh, if not killing political 
uh, opposition. I mean, it's so, so that's one possibility. And then honestly, I don't know what will happen. But the other alternative, which is better, is also quite worrisome because assuming that Biden wins the election, um, you know, the the MAGA Republicans, and those are basically all the Republicans at this point, they're armed. I mean, they they uh, that's one of their major issues is that we should all, everybody should have lots and lots of, um, you know, semi-automatic weapons and carry them and use them wherever they want. So the fear is, that you know they will then say again this was a fake election and trump should have won and uh you know they will take aim that's the worry i mean in the same we saw what happened on january 6th um imagine that magnified um or magnified to make a bad pun um there would be a lot of violence and, you know, unfortunately, some of the people who were arrested came from the military. Nor normally, the American military is reasonably good about being nonpartisan. Okay. And, um, but uh, one just doesn't know right now. So I, I suppose I'm not making any predictions. And I also don't know anyone who is. And I read a lot of smart commentators. <laughs> <laughs> who follow the American scene even more carefully than I do. And it's um, nobody's wanting to make any prophecies. Yeah, making predictions. One of my worst ever predictions was that I simply never thought uh, Donald Trump could be elected, that the uh, um, moderate majority would uh, in the US would, uh, would, even if they liked some of his antics, would, would just find him too unpresidential. But that was... I was with you. I absolutely did not believe it. I think that is a perfect, at 45, 44 minutes, that is a perfect way of bringing the discussion to a conclusion. The intense uncertainty, and I think you make that point again in the book about how, how uncertain uh, things are in the world and the, our, our inability to, to be certain and acknowledgement of the need to, to accept uh, so much is unknowable and uncertain. So look, Susan, thanks again uh, for, for joining us. Uh, people can read more in Susan's book, um, it's been uh, it's been a pleasure to talk, and thanks again on behalf of the institute for for giving us your time today. Pleasure to talk to you, Dan. Take care. Good afternoon to everyone. Mm -hmm.